Jeff York, um, we're here to talk tonight about a masterpiece, a bona fide classic of cinema, a film that until yesterday I had never seen before, but mm. I'm going to stand here on this platform, on this pedestal, and shout <laughs> in the mountains that Don't Look Now by Nicholas Rogue from 1973 uh, needs to be seen by everybody who loves cinema. Not only is it influential, uh, but if you love horror, if you love thrillers, if you've been watching them for you know decades and decades, you're going to see a lot of the the hallmarks, a lot of the editing techniques um, mm. that you've probably seen in in dozens of other films, but probably not quite like you've seen in this movie, which was very cutting edge, mm -hmm. uh, controversial in its day for a rather gratuitous but loving love scene right um right. but yeah i i don't know what why i it's taken me so long to watch this movie but i finally have and i'm happy to talk about it with you jeff york of the establishing shot welcome sir how you doing i'm doing well thank you it's great to be here again with you well you've seen this film before uh you've seen it like i guess a couple of times it, mm -hmm. once you said before we got rolling about 10 years ago and then in preparation for the show had you seen it before or how many times have you watched it i think i've probably seen it four times if i recall correctly the first time i saw it was in college and they used to have revival houses in chicago um when i was uh going to the american academy of art that we share as our alma mater uh there was one called the varsity in evanston and then there was one called um the uh oh gosh was it the uptown maybe i forget what it was called um but it was at the uptown the, the uptown theater whatever it became and they would show revival movies all the time because you didn't have the you know it wasn't quite as plentiful and you maybe had vhs and stuff like that but it wasn't quite the the industry that it, it became via blockbuster and others um and i went to see two nicholas rogue films it was that and um the one with um Oh gosh, I'm blanking on the name of it now. Is with Simon Garfunkel. Um, I could look it up. I'll, I'll have to look it up. Hang on one second. But uh, anyway, I saw it there, and I'd heard about it. I heard it was this uh, really kind of weird, strange um, dissertation on grief, and indeed it was. But it was also this incredible horror movie too, because uh, it's. Uh, and this is what I mentioned right before the show when I watched it just a, a week or so ago to refamiliar re my refamiliarize myself with it it's scary from the moment it starts it's it's cryptic it's creepy it's got all this kind of weird imagery it's got a lot of i mean just tons of symbolism the crashing glass and that one color of red and it's not a nice scarlet red like you've got here on our nameplates no it's a it's it's the blood red of the hammer films you know that they always had in the that represented blood in this in the 50s 60s and 70s um you know, let alone water and falling and premonitions, but we'll talk all about that. But I was kind of blown away by, blown away by it. Uh, and yet it's also this very sad, mournful uh, movie, too, about these two adults trying to reconnect after their child has drowned. And I will say this, when I saw it then and when I saw it just a couple of weeks ago, I think you could almost release that now, other than, of, of course, some of the cinematography has a little bit of a flatter look to it because it was the, the early 70s. And you can tell that there's certain things about it that are very period. But the cutting, the editing, the way it's shot, all the locations, the tracking shots, the running behind the actors running around all over Venice. My God, it looks as contemporary as anything today. And it's, it's one of those films like The Godfather and some of the other things you see in the 70s. You go like, how was that film received then? Because that film would look ballsy and kind of 
bre breakthrough today. You know, like they're just really being bold and daring and it's shot so well. And the score by Pino Dinaggio, oh my God, it's, and then that big sort of romantic song at the end, the most romantic piece in the whole film. And yet it's not a very romantic moment. <laughs> I mean, it's just, it's, 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 it's an incredible movie. And I think you're right. It really does deserve that reputation of being a classic and one that everybody should see. And as much as they talk about horror today in Blumhouse and everybody seems to release a horror movie every other weekend, this is one they should revisit. And frankly, this is one they should be making more, more movies like this. I think this is, is very strong characters. It's a very basic premise of grief and how do you get out of that and what do you want to believe and what don't you, uh, you know, believe and what, where does your hope go? Um, I just, it's, it's riveting. Yeah. And it strikes me. It's one of those great movies that you got a lot of in the seventies, which were horror movies about adults going yes. through things, especially adults going through things with children. I mean, it's, mm. it's like children's so horror is an entire genre. I mean, you think things like The Exorcist and The Omen, we think, oh, it's a creepy kid movie, but it really is about what the parents are going through. That's right. Um, and, the, and they tend to be older parents, like we see in here. Donald Sutherland, I think, was 38 when he made this. And mm -hmm. I'm not sure how old Julie Christie was, but, you know, it's not like these are 22-year-olds acting like they're in high school or 25-year-olds acting like they're 22. Um, these right. are adults who've got, you know, world experience, um, these, uh, John and Laura Baxter, these are our, uh, two protagonists and they're educated people. You know, they're scholars. We first meet them on this sort of like idyllic estate there. It's a foggy sprawling, uh, woods location. Uh, there's a fireplace going, they're kind of hanging out doing their, their scholarly work. He's putting together slides for a big, uh, church restoration. He's getting ready to mm -hmm. embark on in Venice. And I can't remember what she's doing but it, it's something but that's a nice house they, they live a good lifestyle they're they're doing well right but they've got these two kids um johnny and uh christine who are just kind of running around the backwoods property you know playing being right. kids and laura or christine has this bright red kind of rain slicker on and she drowns and mm -hmm. right before or i guess as that's happening John, the dad, is inside, you know, working with his slides, and he has this premonition that he has to run outside yeah, because something's right. wrong, and he discovers that his daughter has fallen into this pond, and he jumps in to save her, and he emerges in slow motion. You have these powerful, like, downward violins and this slow motion scream, and cut to some time later, they're both, the adults are living in Venice, they're picking up the pieces of their lives, he's working on this church site to, uh, to do the restoration, um, and it's weird because we know in the beginning of the film that they have two children, but John Jr., little Johnny, isn't mentioned until the, again until the movie is almost over. You almost forget that they only had mm -hmm. one kid. Mm -hmm. And that, along with some of the th weird things they do with time, adds to this mm -hmm. level of surrealism. So by the time you figure out what the mystery of this movie is, at the right. very end, it's almost right. like The Sixth Sense in more ways than one. Mm -hmm. And we're going to get into spoiler territory, folks. So uh, Super fast. Now. We've already right. kind of mentioned there, but right. stay well, with us because yes. it only makes it better. <laughs> yes, if you, if you haven't seen this movie, I would recommend pausing this, watching it right away. It's here, shameless plug. It's on a 4K disc by Criterion, which came out at the end of last year. Um, and you can also find it other places uh, streaming, but this really is it got some great extras on it. But uh, if you have seen it, stick around. If you haven't, you, you don't want to really spoil this. I'm not going to bother putting up the spoiler banner because, you know, whatever. Just, just listen to us. 
But by the time you figure out what's really going on at the very end, uh, it causes you to reevaluate the entire rest of the film and you flash back to all the visual motifs. It's very much Sixth Sense, Usual Suspects, those great kind of contemporary thrillers mm -hmm. that you think, oh my God, this is so amazing. Nicholas Rogue was doing this uh, 20, 30 years before the, these mm -hmm. other films that are mm -hmm. more popular and in the zeitgeist. Mm -hmm. And you just wonder why isn't this more widely appreciated or known? It's a very good question. I know that the film was very well received critically at the time, but it was not, I, I don't think it was a big hit, but I think it was uh, quickly establishing a cult status with it. And, and maybe it's because it's a very dark film. I don't think there's much um, uh, sort of uh, lightness or happiness, whatever you want to call it on, on the screen. But then again, there weren't, a, there were more and more movies like this in the seventies uh, than there were probably, you know, movies with happy endings. I mean, the seventies was known for dark material, darker themes, adult themes, and, and definitely down, downer, downer of endings. Um, but it's, it's so well done. I think it, it, it maybe discombobulated people a little bit too much then because it is, as to your point, it's unusually edited. You're jumping around in time. I mean, just to go from the, the daughter drowning to suddenly now they're in Venice and they're having lunch together and they look clean and happy, or at least, you know, they're pretending to be happy, uh, sort of with their smiling, figuring out what they're going to have for lunch. Uh, and the worst uh, that it happens to them is the wind is coming in from the, uh, it's cold in the restaurant. So John Sutherland gets up to close the window. Um, John, I should call him. Um, but it sets up their meeting with these two uh, sisters who are going to play a big part in the movie and in their lives. Um, but I think some of those kind of things and, and like even that love scene that you're talking about where, yeah, two A-listers were doing nudity and, you know, it wasn't too explicit by what we think of by today's standards, but at the time it was fairly explicit and they looked like they were actually making love. I mean, there was a lot of um, specific scenes of where he was kissing her and where she was touching him, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but I think what makes that scene so extraordinary more than even that, which maybe was a little bit daring at the time to see two big stars doing that was the fact that it's intercut with them getting dressed for dinner afterwards. And it's, uh, it's sort of like a return to normalcy or a return to intimacy, which they, uh, established, uh, later on that they hadn't really been, uh, in that way for a long time because, she, uh, she was very depressed about the death and, and not really gotten over it. And he was able to sort of consume himself with the restoration of the church's work to get away from it. But she was there with him and still kind of in this glum setting. But then these two women, uh, one who is, uh, is blind but has second sight, sees all kinds of stuff. And she sees the daughter still alive and sitting and happy and laughing between them. And that sort of revives uh, the, the, the Mrs. Baxter. And, and suddenly she's you know, interest in making love again and doing things and sort of joining the human race. So it, that's about the, the happiest it gets in the film right there too. And yet I love the fact that that love scene is cut with them sort of dressing to go to dinner, almost like saying this is all part of normalcy that's returned, albeit deceptively. But I think that's kind of what's to me playing in that scene more than anything is like, this is, this is part of their lives. This is who they were before doing these kind of things where, you know, you're, making love to your spouse and you're getting dressed for dinner and you're going out and you're enjoying each other's company, but they hadn't been there for a while um, because of the death of the daughter. Right. And the, the, the choices between the two of them, uh, the, these intercuttings you mentioned, you know, Laura, after she meets this, these sisters, um, right. Heather, who is the blind psychic and Wendy, who is sort of her, 
I get the feeling kind of the older sister taking care of her. That's right. I mean, that's right. These, when I say sisters, these aren't kids. These are like you know, considerably Probably older. Probably in their late fifties, I would think. Yeah. Right. Um, they they seem to kind of cast a spell on her with this news that you know at least one of them can see the daughter and the daughter's happy yes. and everything. And as you mentioned, that mm-hmm. kind of relights a spark in her. But during that that sex scene, I I'm sorry to harp on this, folks, but it <laughs> is kind of key to the characters. It's also it's explicit. But it is also very tender and natural. It's not That's like right. sex scenes that we see today where it's like, oh, we're going to see some people naked. You really get the feeling these people are reaching out and connecting with mm-hmm. each other. Mm-hmm. And it's 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 kind of shocking in the ways that the rest of the film is shocking in other kind of avenues of genre. But, you know, when we see we're cutting to her, she's getting dressed. She seems kind of distracted, but kind of carefree and kind of happy. And then he is, especially after that scene is over, and he just kind of goes and he plops down on the couch and mm-hmm. he's very distant and he's troubled. And we really mm-hmm. notice that John throughout the film is bothered because he doesn't want to believe any of this psychic mumbo jumbo. But we clearly see that he has that psychic twinkle, um, as, mm-hmm. as I think was the, the expression in the stand. Yes. Um, but it, it's it because he keeps it. We get the feeling he keeps denying something and mm-hmm. it adds to this mystery of is there something sinister going on with him or is he just really conflicted? And what is he really conflicted about? We come to find out later that at the same time all this is happening, there's a serial killer running around Venice and they're pulling up bodies from the canal and, and all, there's all this kind of panic. There are signs that are up that we keep cutting to in the background mm-hmm. saying Venice in peril. Yep. Once you leave the film and you look back on it, a lot, especially by probably today's standards, which may be why folks might seem see it as being a bit easier too cheesy, you see all the hallmarks, all the signs that are there, and it seems a bit too on the nose. But in the moment, it's just this terrific mystery of what does it all mean? And for me personally, when we find out what it means, you mentioned this is a very sad film. I... I don't think it's sad. And and some of my other colleagues that I'll, I'll talk about, um, we talk about, is this a giallo film or not? Which we'll get to that. <laughs> they had said that this is one of the most depressing things that they'd seen and, you know, prepared to, <laughs> to need some, you know, in, in some uppers afterwards. I, I felt a tremendous sense of release and relief, partly because I'd watched a filmic masterpiece, but also because I felt that in the end, there is a sort of tranquility, yes. even amongst that flash of horror that ultimately mm-hmm. brings John to his fate. Mm-hmm. When he is dying horribly as he does, he's flashing back to all these moments yes. in the movie. His brain is finally piecing it together. Yep. I feel like he's gotten the answers that we've watched him struggle mm-hmm. to find within himself and this crazy world mm-hmm. for the last two hours. And it's like, that's got to feel great, even as you're hemorrhaging your artery. <laughs> well, the that you just said, and, and I don't want to say that it's uh, it's sort of mournful in the way that like Ordinary People was, I think, a, a very mournful uh, dissertation itself on grief, which is interesting. That's our settling too. Um, but in that movie, uh, you know, it's how the family is dealing with the fallout from the death of their uh, most popular son uh, or brother. And here they're still, no matter what they're doing on screen, it is about them during the period after the daughter has drawn, which I think would arguably be qualified as the grieving period. And people grieve in different ways. And I think that one of the ways that John grieves here is by not only burying himself in work, but I think being in denial about stuff and maybe almost wanting uh, uh, Laura to snap out of it quick, quicker. Uh, he's a little curt and a little tense during it. But 
I also think his great sort of flaw, I don't know if you'd say sin, but I think his great flaw is that he is around all these sort of um, moments that are premonitions and uh, supernatural and particularly with uh, the sisters and what they're seeing and they see him in danger and they tell him to to be careful and you know you see the signs literally and figuratively everywhere including Venice's in peril and so are you John do you need to <laughs> put that one up on the wall for you yes we do and in some respects Nicholas Rogue does exactly that that accident in the church when he's on the scaffolding oh we'll, was, we'll talk about that yeah it was so well done but i mean there's all these things and at the very end as you said when he's dying he's finally kind of accepted what he was seeing and realizing how it all fits together but he's ignored or not seen properly uh the the premonitions in fact early on in the, it's a throwaway line but i remember reading an interview with nicholas rogue um when uh, he was I forget the last movie he made, but um, it was during that time that he put in the line that you can't believe everything you see. And see, that's, I think, and John says that, and that's his problem. He doesn't believe what he's seen. Uh, he's seen things that are premonitions, but he ignores them or dismisses them. And if he had been maybe paying a little bit closer attention, he might have seen them, particularly the boat going by with the funeral uh, flowers and that on it, which is, to me, that's such a wow when you realize what that is. But um, he thinks it's just, a, oh, I, I saw my wife. She's here in Venice. I've I've got a, maybe that's a premonition. Are you not sure that that's, he's not really giving into what he could be seen better if he had opened up his mind. Well, but I, I wonder about that because I'm not saying I disagree with you, but this film takes what I one of the things I love about it is John as a character doesn't realize he's in a supernatural film. You know, <laughs> his I love that. It's well, like, do you realize that you're in a scary city with all kinds of scary? <laughs> this one specific red keeps showing up all over the place. It's even in your scarf. Do you not see this, John? Well, but I mean, that's the thing. Like, <laughs> that, we that can sinister look... detective who was interviewing him should have shared some of that with him. Like, well, I we'll, can we'll see talk it already. I'm just sitting here for 10 minutes, but anyway, <laughs> well, we'll, we'll talk about him too. Cause sure, sure. particularly this movie goes like further and f it spirals more and more out of control oh, yeah. and into weird territory as oh, it goes yeah. on. But it strikes me the, the motifs of the reds and all that stuff. That's for the audience. I think, Oh yeah, of course. I don't, of course. I don't think John it's, it's kind of like, you know, you don't know what your own destiny is until That's you look right. back over the last five years. Like, Probably oh, if I hadn't gone yeah. to that store, then I never would have met this person or, or taken yes. this turn and yes. gotten this job or gotten run over by a train. You know, I don't know. I was being a little facetious store, there, but, but I mean, it is funny. Like, that's one of those things where, like, you know, just the brilliance of symbolism in films. And it, and it shows up in the first couple of that ball has got that red star and it her slicker, the blood dropping on the slide. Did you notice that the first slide had the killer in it? No. Yes. Go back and look. In the, <laughs> in the very first shot that he's looking at up close, he's got it under the mic. He's literally got it out of the magnifying glass. Uh, he's looking at it, and you see the red cloaked killer in the right hand corner. He's in the wow. church. You know what? I did. I did see that weird shape, and I knew because I've only yeah. seen the movie once. Yeah, it was that's like okay. I've, I've got three other times on you, so you're doing very well for well, just but, one timer. <laughs> well, thank you. But no, what I love is that it it's like those other movies that we've mentioned. It's it's got all these moments that you want to go back and revisit and say, how did I miss that? Or, you know, what more is there to look into here? Um, one thing I noticed 
was there. I, I can't, I want to say it was when Laura was walking through the streets, but it might've been John, but there's a, a recurring a scene with a recurring shot of a wall that has this red streak. It almost looks like rust water or something, but mm-hmm. it's bright red running down the wall in a very narrow you know, streak, almost like a, like a waterfall impression, right? right. which mirrors John, when he's dying, his foot kicks out yeah, this little bit of the stained glass down. and the, Jesus. yeah, it comes trickling down. It's yeah. almost exactly the same placement in the frame, the same colors. Mm-hmm. It's just brilliant. And I know this is based on a short story, which now I really want to, or a novella, which I really want to read now. I don't know how much of this was from that and how much of this was adapted by Rogue to say, there's some great themes in the book that I want to put, you know, I want to visualize and, and make into a puzzle for the audience. Um, but yeah, the, the, my point is, my earlier point was not only about not recognizing these motifs, but John, who doesn't realize he's in a, a, a supernatural thriller, you know, how often do we ignore our, our own instincts to our own yes. peril? Not even like big things like, oh, I didn't notice that my own funeral procession was passing <laughs> me by on the canal. But, yes. you know, you're like, yes. maybe, you know, you ever think maybe I should not take that left turn. Right. Like, but you take it anyway because you're like, nah. And then you trip over a sidewalk panel. You know, these little moments happen Mm -hmm. to us throughout our lives. For sure. You ignore them, but it's not because, you know, the script wants you to ignore them. It's just because you don't think anything of it because you feel like you're living in a grounded, non supernatural world. Right. Right. Yeah. I mean, I I don't think that, um, in, in the literal sense of the word, that he's necessarily supposed to notice that this sort of uh, red foreboding color is is repeating itself and literally part of the fabric of his very being with his scarf. It's also the color of her boots when she when when Laura comes back and it's the baseball cap on the sun at the final scene as well. Um, but uh, it, it's funny because for, um, you know, that the, he doesn't really want to see it. And the blind woman, of course, has the real sight she can sort of see what really is is going on and stuff um the uh, um the heather character i think she's played by hillary mason is the name of that actress but um and even when she's screaming at him or telling laura to tell him to avoid this or not he just kind of got his head a little bit in the sand you know it's funny too because um i i don't know uh this i imagine it was but the title don't look now has so much of that kind of um you know that cheeky sort of horror kind of vibe to it like don't look now but somebody's <laughs> coming up behind you you know those kind of things or i know what you did last summer or you know uh um whatever happened to baby Jane or how awful about Alan, you know, things like that. Um, but it's so funny because he's sort of not looking, he's not seeing what he probably should be seeing. And, and even at the end, I, and I want to jump to the end with him chasing after the, the red hooded uh, character. But um, I think the child's laughter and I think some of the things that he's putting into that scene are him maybe buying into some of the wishful thinking of his wife or maybe the parts of his mind where he doesn't necessarily feel 100% anymore about whether his daughter is dead. And, you know, and that kind of gets him in trouble because there's clearly signs that this is not the red slicker. It's not his daughter and other things going on. But, um, but yeah, it's, it's, it's one of those films that if you're a horror buff and you haven't seen this movie, you're missing one of the essentials. Yeah. And I, 
I don't think we should oversell it in terms of like horror. I, I agree. If you're a horror fan, you should definitely watch this. But this is not a slasher film. It's not, not a, a gore fest. No, um, there's there very little. One. I mean, I don't think there's much going until the very, very end. Right. And even that is, you know, sort of tastefully done. It's awful, yes. but it's not like there's constant slashing yeah. back and forth or anything. Uh, right. Plus it's intercut with this, like we mentioned, this kind of beautiful montage of flashback where everything is revealed. Right. But yeah, it is very much an atmospheric, you know, character piece about these two adults learning to, to live with loss. I mean, I would say the other contemporary example would probably be like the others, but that's even from, you know, 24 years ago. But that's or a very good comparison. I think, um, you know, and I think it, it is also where, the, the one of the things I really uh, appreciate about watching it this time, which I, I think I obviously registered that when I'd seen it before, but it really came through is like how much the location shooting is a character in this film. I mean, it's so essential to it. And I, I like that. I just got done um, watching the first episode of the new True Detective with Jodie Foster, and they shot it in Alaska and it, plays, it takes place in Alaska. And it's just incredible when you see if a movie shot on its location and not Vancouver or Toronto subbing for New York City or something like that. And here they're really out on the canal and down those corridors. And it's it just that city becomes a scary character in the film. You it, It's mysterious anyway, and it's kind of hidden pathways and tight, narrow passageways and such. The water being how you get around the town is already kind of creepy and weird. And of course, where does he go to restore the church? A place covered in water and where did his daughter drown in water. So, you know, the water motif is to your point, maybe a little on the nose, but it's, it's also terribly ironic that that's where they're going to sort of find some <laughs> escape from it. And they're surrounded by all kinds of things that are not exactly codifying or, or, you know, soothing for sleep, I would think. Well, it's it also, you know, the end of the movie, I think it's just ambiguous enough that you could take it as at face value. And and, and we'll just jump ahead to, sure. to kind of the spoiler point. Um, you know, John ultimately does pursue a figure who he sees in a red, what he perceives to be the red slicker that his daughter was wearing. Uh, he kept, he corners her. It turns out it is the serial killer that's been stalking people in Venice. It's this weird little person in a red slicker who has this right. maniacal grin and she pulls out this giant, you know, knife and slashes him across the throat. He bleeds to death horribly, like kicking and kind of moaning. That's right on the jugular. Had, yeah. And he's dying and kind of piecing all this together in his death throes. You could take that literally to say, okay, so this he was seeing premonitions of what of this moment like and and the aftermath because that mm -hmm. funeral procession that was his funeral procession that was laura right. and the and the twins or yeah, the, the sisters yeah. or you know you hear stories about um you know when you die the brain kind of shuts down and you can mm -hmm. get this like influx of information this is like the life flashing before your eyes but it's not necessarily organized because, you know, mm -hmm. your, your brain is dying. It could be mm -hmm. stuff kind of jumbled up into a very dreamlike sure, state. Sure. So how much of this was ever actually real versus his mind making motifs and stories into the form of this movie to rationalize, you know, the end of his life? Yeah, it's a good question. Um, and in fact, I would argue that you can't really take this film at face value because of that line, you can't believe everything you see, or uh, I'm not sure every if there's a, a single single really objective shot in here. I think most of it is 
is open to interpretation. I mean, even uh, the son who breaks the glass riding over some old board or something in the very first scenes on his bike is not paying attention to his sister. And that almost seems sinister, but it's like it's happening around him. But does that mean anything to him at the moment other than, you know, there's glass in his tire? Probably not. But again, with all of the stuff that starts with Donald Sutherland's character of John having these premonitions, I think it is at least erring on the side of what we are seeing are things that are telling him what is going on. And I think, you know, it's funny, there's a great motif in horror. And we, I think we've talked about it on your show many times, but um, I, 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 the, the, was it not the other man, but the um, something man, Blake Snyder writes about it in his um, saving the camp book. I, I'm, I'm sorry that I'm forgetting key things tonight, but um, <laughs> there is a, but he says in most horror, there is somebody who tells you what's going to happen. Uh, a lot of times it's just a odd character that comes in. You Crazy know. Ralph from Friday the 13th. Exactly. <laughs> Things like that. Or, uh, um, uh, you know, the, the character who kind of actually tells the answers to you at some point. Um, the Vincent D'Onofrio character, if you will, in um, Sinister, the movie with Ethan Hawke. Oh, as the yeah. Best-selling yeah. writer trying to write another serial killer thing. And he, you know, Vincent D'Onofrio not only is a professor, he calls online to tell him who this character is and what's the mythic lore but also sort of tells you here's the stuff here's the shit <laughs> uh, another uh, but um, another great horror movie about an adult going through yes you know, the the, the so crisis true. of you know fleeting fame and, and finding and meaning in your missing work the yeah. signs as well i guess yeah anyway you know, be sort of being blinded by his own ambition but what i love here is the heather character now she's much bigger of a character in here than normally that person is in, in these kind of movies and yet she is there to not only provide this creepy foil to that that, uh, Don, that John gets mad at uh, her and her sister for sort of putting thoughts in Laura's head and, and making her think things that aren't realistic. At one point she yells, our daughter is dead. And uh, But deep down, I'm not sure he's convinced. But what I love about the Heather character, she's first brought in to sort of do this terrible misconception job or, or you know, con job not a con job uh, but convince i guess that's what con is short for uh convince laura that the daughter is maybe dead but then as it goes on she's seen more and more stuff and at the end when she's saying to laura go out and get him he's in danger it's like she's not the boy who cried wolf she's been right every damn time even if it's a little on the nose as you pointed out but i, I think she keeps coming back into it as she may be blind but she's the one who who can see what's going on and she's uh, she's the only one who's really sort of got the vision well and that that brings up a, a bigger question which is if she's psychic and she can see that he's in such danger why and maybe it's the 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 unclear language of the psychic and, right. and they can't necessarily in they can't literally interpret the things that they see because we don't necessarily see what she sees we just see her have these kinds of episodes and right and make these proclamations but it's like there's almost an, an inevitability about this entire movie like mm -hmm. there was no way that he wasn't going to end up dead at this at the end of this movie at the hands of this person which you know maybe the the psychic sister is something that he used to make sense of all this and, and ignoring the warning signs mm -hmm. because you know if he can ignore this crackpot psychic lady 
as a stand-in for him not paying attention to his own intuition or his own psychic yeah, vibes. Maybe that's, that's right. let him letting himself off the hook. I don't know if she's literal or a figment of you know his rationalization. Mm -hmm. Well, it's a good. That's a good point. I mean, I think um, she's there in some respects. I think as a movie motif, uh, which mm -hmm. is what Blake Snyder uh, said that that kind of character is. Um, uh, I think it's called a half person, maybe like it's, <laughs> it's, it's kind of a half character because the character is really there to give this very important exposition. It's basil respect. exposition from, uh, from that's right. hours. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Austin, that's my mother, Austin. She's a man, baby. Um, that, that killer is really a strange looking munchkin, man. I don't know. It's the first job she got since 39. Um, but, uh, but nonetheless, I think it's funny how John falls into sort of the typical character that often exists in horror, which is another reason I think to recommend it to horror fans and see how it can be done, where it isn't like he's a dunderhead, but he does act, I guess, um, carelessly and maybe too brazenly at, at certain points. I, I mean, I think it's interesting that he's going and running after these things and, and sort of not paying attention to stuff and comes very close to getting killed you know in in some respects um it reminds me of like what they did with the gregory peck character in the omen it's like all this stuff is going on around you and yet you're still hesitating to kill that child he's a child he doesn't know what's going on he has no reason to do this it's like it doesn't matter you have to stop the devil and you didn't uh your friend's head was just lopped off by happenstance from a glass tr glassy truck come on um but here, you know, I mean, he's running around and a detective tells him to to pull back and he even points out that he's wrong in getting these women sort of detained and everything. And um, He's missing the signs. He's don't look now, John, but that person you think is your kid is maybe the killer. That's the B plot throughout this entire film that you've been ignoring. And that's that's why I keep coming back to this idea of he is like the ultimate rational man. Yes. Because how let's look again at signs mm -hmm. that we may have ignored in our own life. You know, mm -hmm. if we go up to the pearly gates after it's over, it's like that story, the, the metaphor of, of the guy in the rowboat or, or no, he's, he's trapped on his roof because there's a flood and God sends him like someone else coming by in a boat. He sends yep. him like an airplane, all this other stuff. And he goes up to heaven after he dies and drowns. And he's like, why didn't you save me, God? And he's like, I sent you a rowboat, an airplane, helicopter. <laughs> you know, we're ignoring these signs because we think there can't be anything more. We would expect, you know, big M writ large miracles. But, you know, in this presentation, he might be spiraling into madness because there's all this crazy stuff happening. But at no point might he think, well, this is supernatural forces at work. We, the audience, I mean, we can see that. I was convinced that the, the the Wendy and Heather characters were actual witches because mm. of the way not only mm -hmm. do John and Laura start noticing them, mm -hmm. like always walking in oh, yeah. pairs, always showing yeah. up. They're on always everyone. they're all over the place. Yeah, right. But towards the end, other people start seeing them. Mm -hmm. There's a great shot of when uh, John goes to visit. It's it wasn't the maybe it was the consulate or, or some official that he has this very weird meeting with. And the guy is sitting there like writing at his desk. And it yeah. turns out he's drawing this creepy face and he looks out the window. John can't and see who he's looking at, but he's looking down the street. And then you just see they're right you know, there. Wendy and Heather walk. They're just they're just walking. Yeah. And it's not like they're standing there looking up at him creepily. They're just like 
walking, doing their business. They don't mm -hmm. stop and turn or do anything. Right, but right. They are there. And I'm just wondering what is going on with these people. Uh, at one point, um, when John goes to the police station to help get Heather out, because as you mentioned, he had had her wrongfully imprisoned, the female guard, when she's letting them out of the room, the camera hangs back on her. And she does this momentary twitch of the mouth where she mm -hmm. almost like goes from a passive kind of a drone like, you know, I'm just doing my night shift job to like this flash of a grin on her face. And then it goes back to normal. Like, what is happening with this movie? Again, mm -hmm. I don't know if it was just the actress, you know, doing a mouth twitch mm -hmm. during this take and they left it in. Or if it's supposed to be, yeah, there's there's forces at work here, audience. And this is a clue that, as John said, not everything is as it seems. Yeah, I mean, if, if nothing else, I think Rogue is maybe uh, lingering on those kinds of shots to illustrate that exactly your point, or perhaps that um, you can't really be sure that you can trust anybody, or anybody is entirely what you think they may be. To your very point, I thought when I remember when I first saw it, I thought uh, the the women are evil, they're, they're, they might be witches, they might be some sort of... Uh, conduit to danger. Um, you know, I even had con uh, thoughts of Ruth Gordon, you know, who seems like the uh, just comic relief in, in Rosemary's baby until, you know, you really, she's not very funny. Uh, she's pretty sinister. Um, but uh, then by the end, I'm almost wondering if they're guardian angels because they keep trying to help him. And maybe they're hovering around watching them. Maybe that's just a weird presentation of them, but you can't judge a book by its cover. You can't trust everything uh, that you see. You don't know what to believe. Uh, the cop seems like a, a perfectly nice person and she'll, until she does that kind of odd reaction. And then it's like, is she weird? The civil servant who he's talking to or whatever, uh, where he's drawing the picture and talking to him, he comes off very sinister in it. Um, and what's that about? I mean, I think it's almost like... Who do you trust? But I think ultimately what at the end of the day, no matter what Rogue's intention were or, or 20 ways maybe uh, uh, it could be interpreted because I think these kind of films have those many interpretations. I think it is to unsettle us and make it all seem tense and scary, which it does very well. Again, the city is a character in it. These characters could be bad or they could just be odd. We don't know. Um we can't really trust anything we're seeing either. Uh, uh, and then maybe that's maybe how we relate to John is that he kind of glosses over a lot of, uh, of it too. But um, he, he sort of pays the price for it with his life. We pay the price for it by being shocked and scared as horror fans who maybe are missing some of those signs too, even though it says Venice is in trouble, you son of a bitch, pay attention. <laughs> well, <laughs> do you remember that first? Uh, I mean, but, but it's funny, though, because Rogue throws it in there from, like I said, that very first shot of the slide um, uh, of, the, of the, the, the killer in the church. Uh, and but you're not looking for it then. You're not you don't have any expectation for them, but it's there. And it's, it's kind of funny once you know that it's it's like, you know, Hitchcock or somebody one time, maybe it was Truffaut who said when he interviewed Hitchcock. But upon the first viewing of Psycho, you're scared to death and it's a horror movie. The second time you watch it, it almost becomes a comedy because it starts to uh, be funny how it cues you or clues you into what's going on. You're like, well, my mother, so I'm late. Uh, my mother is, um, how you say, not herself today. I mean, right. that's a throwaway line. <laughs> we don't think anything of it the first time we hear it. But after we know what the truth of the story is, that line has great meaning. 
<laughs> well, and that's why, you know, going back to the slide, and I, again, I got to look for the killer next time I watch it, but, you know, if there is an argument to be made that this whole movie is the figment of John kind of rationalizing the events leading up to his death, mm -hmm. like there's no, there's no reason outside mm -hmm. of filmmaker flourish that that image should appear in the slide. You know, that's, that's like a weird, yep. beyond coincidence, that's an actual, you know, cosmic sign of, of things to right come. right but what i you said something that i'm i love my rule of three but so far i only have a rule of two for this okay uh the idea of the guardian angel the sisters who you know these creepy characters that mm -hmm. look sinister and they're up to no good it reminded me of the movie pet cemetery mm. with the pascal character the guy yes. who got killed on the bike and he keeps showing up and he's horrifying to look at you know his, mm -hmm. half of his head is hanging out and his brains falling down in his shirt right but it turns out at the end he's trying to warn lewis creed from you know trying to protect him another character mm -hmm. who is brazen he see lewis creed sees the supernatural and walks right through the door he has no illusion of it right. so in that right. way he's different from john but there are also characters who ignore their instincts in pursuit of something that they think is correct um but the other pet cemetery reference I got was in that opening scene where John comes up out of the water, cradling his dead son and screaming in slow motion. That was also when little Gage gets run over by the truck and you've got That's um, right. Lewis screaming. It, it's weird to look out now because he's got that late 80s hair that's like flopping in slow motion in the wind. But and by you know, the way, did Donald Sutherland wore a wig in this one? That's not his real hair. What? Yeah. Uh, he, I think, um, I, I forget what he, what he did right before this. It might've been Kelly's heroes or something, but, um, I think they wanted him to look different and, you know, kind of attractive and, you know, the seventies get away that big hair was, but, um, he wore, my understanding is he wore a wig for this. That's one hell of a wig. Cause I, it was I a very good wig. At least I went, maybe it wasn't full. Maybe some of it was around his, maybe those are his real bushy sideburns and stuff but um but i read that he wore a wig in this because i was i was thinking of uh body snatchers which he would do a few years yeah after. and he had the same kind of hair then which maybe that was the same wig they said <laughs> why did you cut your hair again we want you to have normal hair well do you have that wig from joe mcdowell i have the <laughs> scarf too no no we can't do that um <laughs> We'll let your double wear the scarf. Uh, but, oh, um, man. But, but, it, but it's interesting because uh, I think, and then at one point too, the other thing that I think this movie is also about, or at least pushes it in the horror genre, if not begs questions about what, what kind of past these people had. But uh, there's a number of times that they talk about the Baxters being cursed. And in some respects, it seems like from the get-go, I don't know if it's, you know, is it restoring, changing the church? Is it... Uh, the all the things that have gone on with uh, Venice and its water problems, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know. Uh, I mean, the 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 Bishop uh, Barbarigo, the character, and this is seems like a very kind man, but he's also trying to help him. But again, I think from the get go, there is this doom, this cast of doom hanging over them that they don't quite see, even to the point where we're being shown it, and and it seems almost obvious after you've seen it once and go back and watch it a few times like I have. Um, but, but John is, uh, you know, like you said, he's kind of the typical male, like I, I'm going to walk into that 
dark room. I'm going to pursue this without calling the cops first. It's always the, the daring hero in these things who gets in more trouble because he, he, he acts rashly and doesn't really think like a smart, logical person he would say like, I think I'll wait till the day to go see if the vampire's in his, in his house. No, no. Carl Kolchak had to go in there at night. He was the he wasn't the day stalker. That's right. He was the night stalker. He's like, I've got a reputation to live up to. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, let's talk. The other thing that occurred to me was there's a scene at the end, ever ever the the climax, where we see that bishop waking up in bed, yep. and he kind of turns off on the light and turns it back off, and he's very disturbed, and we're not yep. quite sure the connection. It reminded me of the end of Donnie Darko. Another movie that plays with yep. time and perception of yep. what is real. And at the end, there's the montage of all the people waking up from the nightmare of this like mm -hmm. reality passing through them. And right. they're all kind of shook. It, it, I don't know if they're connected. I don't know if Richard Kelly was thinking of this movie, but I thought of it when I, when I saw that moment. He may have. I mean, I think this film has probably influenced a lot of movies. I mean, I'm sure if you go into certain films you can say oh they borrowed that from hitchcock they borrowed that from nicholas rogue they borrowed that from uh the hammer films or whatever um and i think too the bishop by being around all of that and being within this world where there's an elevation of uh accepting supernatural things and, and miracles or life after death etc cetera, etc cetera. uh you know he's been been touched by it too but i think he's also felt the effects of being around this sort of sense of doom or danger or premonition or whatever so you know i think it's showing that he's kind of connected in in a way as well um i also wonder too is that why the red is there not only for us as the viewer to say oh Red is either the color of love or the sense of foreboding and blood and danger. I think it's on the danger side for this film. Um, but, uh, you know, are, are some of the things of the premonitions about all of us maybe not paying attention to things or all, all being open to it just by brushing up against it, you know, uh, by being sort of within the vicinity of it? Do we get colored with it a little bit? Um, uh, and even like, you know, Laura wearing the red boots, is that something that she doesn't realize is kind of part of her connection to all of this, including the, the big death at the end with the character, the killer being in that same color red cloak. Um, maybe, maybe it's all just saying it once you sort of touch that world, it can sort of spread like a virus, but it's, it's all interesting questions. I think that they raise about what we know, what we can see, what's natural, what's supernatural. Um, well, it's it is it does kind of touch on this idea of the collective unconscious, you know, right. to exactly what you're saying. It, it reminds me, apropos of nothing, um, but this happens with my family every once in a while. It happened today, in fact, where we'll all come out for breakfast and realize we all dressed in the same color, like the same color oh, scheme, wow, that's you interesting. know, all differently. But we're all wearing like, but eerily, not just like, oh, we're wearing red sweaters, but we're wearing red sweaters with a touch of gray, like gray sleeves. And it's like, oh, what wow. the hell? Um, but but with the Bishop character, we see him, his interactions with John, he's always kind of wary and concerned and like he senses there's something wrong as if perhaps mm -hmm. if John has a tingle that he is ignoring, perhaps this Bishop character, maybe it's his connection to God or just the way, you know, whatever almost mm -hmm. has like a lesser version of that where he can't quite put his finger on it, but like something's something unsettling here. I, I don't quite know what's going on, but I don't like it. Um, we mm -hmm. do need to talk about 
you know, it's rare that I, I hate the term jaw dropping because it's a cliche, but honestly, the scene in the church where John goes to get up on this ladder, this, this scaffolding to um, match these tiles that they got in for the restoration and a giant beam falls in, it doesn't fall in slow motion exactly, but we see it happening. And it's like that, that slow motion car wreck effect where you see something happening, but it's just quick enough that you can't do anything about it, but you want to, mm -hmm. we see this beam fall and penetrate the platform that he's on. He ends up dangling like a hundred feet in the air mm -hmm. in this cathedral. There's workers all around him. Some are parallel to him up in the rafters, some are down the floor, but he's hanging on there. And it looks like Donald Sutherland is actually it doing does. this stunt yeah. for, I swear, three minutes of screen time. And it's absolutely harrowing. When he falls and catches that platform, my my mouth fell open. I oh, was yeah. like, what? I, I can only imagine seeing this on the big screen. Yeah, it, it is. It's a shocking and it, it plays well today. I mean, it's really a great stunt and the way it builds and it goes on for a while. And it seems very vicious and violent. I mean, the, the sound design there and the crash of the glass and these things are heavy and it's so high and 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 then you're also wondering like why is that happening what is is this some they don't want to have the church restored is it the devil is it uh, fate saying leave leave things that are dilapidated alone because there's a reason for that and it's the whole reason for venice <laughs> as a tourist attraction <laughs> i don't know um but it's terrifying and it's a great scene and the fact that we know that this is sort of part of these uh, conjurings or the visions that uh that are being had by um, by Heather is uh, makes it all the more palpable. And you wonder, is he going to die this early in the film? Uh, but it's probably about, what, two-thirds of the way through. But he's had a couple of near misses and stuff like that. I also think it's interesting, the very first scene and the way Rogue shoots it is, he's underwater a considerable amount of time before he comes out with his daughter. You know, it's not like it's done quick. He's not cutting to save time there. I mean, he, he is looking... And then he goes down, and then it's a while before he comes out. So, you know, I think there's many times where you're wondering exactly what the fate is of, of John. He seems to be getting very close to danger at all times, even when he's in the water there. Now, grant you, he's probably going to be able to be fine and get out of there, but it's it's treacherous waters, and he can't see her, and he's diving underneath it to look for her, and he's caked in mud, so he's hit the bottom and thrashed around down there, and it's like... He's already a little bit on the edge of between life and death just doing that, let alone a number of other times when he's doing stuff. How about the fact that he foolishly locks that gate at the end, too, so they can't get to him? And there's that one scene where uh, Laura's, like, holding her arms out, you know, trying to get through, and she can't. And it's like he doesn't even allow help to come because he's locking the gate to try to get the figure out what's going on, and so there's no escape route. He's literally sealing his own fate. There you go. I love um, it. See, that's it, it. You say it, and it's on the nose. But it's it's. But see, that also gives it a third, certain amount of cheekiness, which I think the seventies had, where they were. Um, they're laughing at us a little bit on this one, and laughing with us too, while scaring us. But I think that's Roke having some fun as a filmmaker. You're right. He's literally sealing his own fate. <laughs> nicely done. I didn't actually think about that as that literal turn of phrase, but that's so funny. Wouldn't it be funny if it said that in the script? And with that motion, John seals his own fate. He will realize that in another two minutes. Well, I, but it, it makes sense for the story because what precedes that is 
him chasing this figure like mm-hmm. all through these streets and over bridges and and mm-hmm. through you know into these increasingly mm-hmm. scary fog enshrouded environs yep and you get the feeling like he's got to close the gate behind because he does not want to lose her she's very elusive this character yep. but what struck me here is a reference to another horror movie that came out in 1988 which was hellbound hellraiser 2 there is a scene where Kirsty is running through the labyrinth of hell and yep. it's not hell like everything's on fire it's a very cold stone labyrinth yes. place and it's very yes. dark and running through these quarters with these arches and bridges but this there's no score it's just the sound of the clack clack yes. clack clack clacking of the of the shoes on the pavement you could line that up with don't look now and that disorienting kind of feeling and in that movie, the camera eventually twirls around in a darkness and the Cenobites are revealed. In this, there's almost that same feeling, but it's not as obvious as, you know, literally twirling around. We're getting disoriented because we just see all these same structures and we're just running around in circles ourselves. You're exactly right. Exactly right. And there's other references, too, I'm sure that influenced filmmakers. Like uh, when I watched it a little while ago, I'd forgotten that when he discovers the whatever you would call it, elfin um, serial killer. Um, she's kind of in the corner, like with her mm-hmm. back to him. What the hell is she doing there? And that reminded me of the really only great horror, horrible, scary shot in the Blair Witch Project. Yes. Which is the last shot of that movie. It's like, what's that character doing in the corner there? That's just creepy as fuck. But so is this. This was creepy as fuck too. And then she turns around and reveals herself and you realize, okay, it's not a kid. Um and then, but like, was the laughter of the kid? See, I think that's John thinking that's his daughter laughing, as opposed to the real laughter of that sinister killer. But uh, and, and maybe that is the that's that there it is. That's my third pet cemetery connection. Oh, I don't know when King wrote that, but I, I feel <laughs> it was uh, he after very he saw this movie and did a lot of cocaine. Yeah. Because what do you have is the climax <laughs> of that movie. You've got a grieving father pursuing what he thinks is his resurrected dead child right, right. but it turns out that child has been or the image of that child has been taken over corrupted by a much older sinister murderous presence that's exactly right yeah i mean that's it's again it's um and he's missing a lot like there's a scene where those those spots are back on his thigh that uh, his wife calls out to him when they're um, showering and stuff like that. And he doesn't see that. So, I mean, little throwaways where he's not seeing things or maybe this is a resurrection kind of thing with the, but I also think if, if there's a little bit of a cautionary tale as there is in, in most good horrors, you know, when you sort of play in these fields, you tend to get burned a little bit. I'm not sure they're saying we can't ask questions about the other world or layers of existence and stuff but somehow when mere mortals brush up against these things they tend to not be uh unscathed and uh it it seems like um he's missing a lot but maybe he shouldn't be running down those canals let alone doing any of this kind of stuff that uh is getting him into trouble Uh, yeah and that's that's preceded by i think it's when uh, he was walking with, um, yeah, it was when he was escorting, I think it was Heather, the, the blind sister down the steps of the canal. And she was talking mm-hmm. about how they, you know, they, the canals feel safe at night because the sound travels and you can hear people coming up right, on it. Right. And a few minutes later, he's 
running you know into this dark city it's the the least safe thing that he can do and it's also a very abandoned city i mean people seem to be asleep maybe it's just Mm -hmm. a part of town where people don't go out at night for good reason but possibly because there's a serial killer about right right the serial killer thing aside from a couple and again i just watched this the one time they dragged the body out of the canal. That's a big production. At first, I thought that was Laura because she had just left. And she's intended to look like that. I mean, she's got the same color hair, about the same length. It's even a little curly, even though she's been in the yeah. drink for a while. But yeah, it's definitely, uh, see, it's it's all these kind of, um, well, I don't want to say doppelgangers, but I think there's things that uh, mirror other things in it, including that body mirrors the Julie Christie character. There's one thing before I get to my last topic I want to talk about here uh, involving time. I want to see if you, as someone who's seen this movie a number of times, if this bothered you at all. One of the kind of the inciting incidents of the when this movie really kicks into gear is Laura and John are in bed together. It looks like it's the middle of the night and the phone rings and it's the school uh, little Johnny's is when we remember that, oh yeah, they had a second kid. Right, little Johnny's right. like at boarding school in London and there's been some kind of an accident. Accident, right. Right. And so Laura has to go hop on a plane to go be with him while John stays behind. Mm-hmm. But it's the middle of the night and it's just strange because it seemed like it was some kind of a school accident, which would have happened, I would imagine, during the day. So I'm like, okay, is he in school like back in the States or something? But no, he's in London. Yeah, there's which only, would be the same time only, zone. Almost yeah, the same a, time zone. There's an hour difference between yeah, them. Right. And then later on, when they're talking about Laura coming back, which mm. is another pet cemetery connection. Oh my mm. God. Yeah, I'm coming, I'm catching the flight back. But you know, mm. the dad mm. is gonna go off and do this weird stuff involving mm. the dead kid. Um, he's she's like, Yeah, I'll be in at eleven the you know, eleven o'clock. I'm like, okay, maybe, but it just it does it still sounds like they're you know a world away when they're you know. <laughs> not that far apart really um but yeah, again i don't know if this is no that's those are good points or I mean, if, it, if it's an actual playing with time again yeah i mean and you wonder too like if they're only an hour ahead you think they would call during the day but maybe for some reason she calls at night for whatever reason after uh, but you're right those are good questions uh, and they're they might be mistakes uh, there's always mistakes that are there in, in film when you watch them if uh um if they don't highlight them in the bloopers on the DVD, you can find them on your own if you got a good eye. Again, how how much are you seeing? Are you paying attention? But I think there's um, so many interesting themes going on here and, and sort of um, motifs. The water, the broken glass, things falling and crashing. Um, you know, obviously the sort of echoing or the the duplicative images and 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 you know, are these people demons? Are they guardian angels? Are they friend or foe? You don't know. Why is everybody weird? Why is everybody sinister? I think it's all to really kind of make you realize that John is still, even with all this kind of stuff around him, uh, a little bit pigheaded and sort of stuck in his own world and missing stuff and coming very close to danger, very close to things that at least he should be asking better questions about and maybe asking, asking too rash. Um, I always wonder, too, like when you play in that world, whether it's inviting a vampire in or, you know, going into the haunted house or looking up things online that you shouldn't be or looking at scary home movies like uh, Ethan Hawke's character in Sinister. (laughs) I always think there is this stay out kind of thing. But, of course, we as an audience, 
want that hero to go in there and not stay out because otherwise we want to have a movie and we're voyeurs ourselves and we want to see what happens. But it's always interesting to me. You, you kind of play with fire, you get burned is one of the earliest lessons you learn as a child. And yet here we are, even though it's a very dull love story and this person isn't really taking any of those very salient lessons that we learn very early in our lives to heart because he puts himself in danger a lot through this. And the one thing I think is interesting at the very end is it finally catches up with him. Like you wonder how many near misses he's had already, you know, like, yeah, he's even from the get go, like he's diving into the water. Now I'm not saying he would necessarily drown, but he could have had a heart attack there or whatever. But I mean, it's a dangerous setting. It's not just like, it's not just played for the tears. It's played for like a little bit of the mystery and even him, he's struggling to get her out of the thing. Like he's, having trouble carrying her, you know, and, and all this kind of stuff. And, and his wife crashes, falls over on the table at lunch. And suddenly that's a disaster and, and violent too. So, um, uh, but it's, it's interesting when you, I, I love the sort of sense of touching God, whether it's by restoring the Vatican or adopting a child from people after your child has died that, you know, you're maybe inviting danger in and the devil a little bit. I'm not saying that the devil's in this film per se, but I think he's dancing with him a little bit by being so careless. Yeah. I mean, I, I can definitely see that again. I, I got to revisit this at some point to pick up on, I feel like I've, I've gotten a lot out of it, but I also feel like there's, you know, volumes to be written and talked about, uh, what I might have missed. Um, yeah, so one of the, and we talked about this before we jumped on, I was planning to talk about this with the Academia Giallo crew because it's on our list of, I can't remember who came up with this list, but we got one somehow of like all the Giallo movies or all the ones we were talking about, and this came up on it. And, you know, I was like, hey, we got the Criterion disc and we've got this name on the on the list. Why not? I took it to them and they said, eh, it's not really a giallo film. I don't know what you want to talk about. I think also they said, you're also going to be really depressed after you watch this. So we kind of didn't. And so, Jeff, you were good enough to talk to me about it. And I'm, I'm glad we had this conversation. Really glad I got to see the film. But watching it, I, I'm puzzled because I see this as a giallo film. Now, granted, it doesn't have a killer you know, wearing black gloves and stalking people with stiletto, but mm -hmm. it's got the italian setting which side note you ever been to the venetian casino in las vegas yes i stayed I, in the venetian hotel i stayed at the for, for the soft opening i was out there for a convention for advertising i had to give a lecture about children's advertising and they decided wow. to have it at the venetian in las vegas so i was literally there the first week it was open the soft opening which i now know that term after uh oceans 13 with uh <laughs> willie bank in his soft opening but I'm going to get my five stars, my diamonds. Well, I've been there a Al Pacino, couple of times. For those of you paying attention and keeping up with the scorecard. Oh, yeah. <laughs> when you um, know it, I just want to make sure your viewers are with us. Thank you. Um, <laughs> but no, I've, I've been there a couple of times and I love it because they do try and recreate that. They have actual canals. Oh, yeah. and you can get yeah. on gondolas and ride yeah. around mm -hmm. the this casino. But I thought, how fun would it be? to do cosplay dress up as julie christie and donald sutherland and get someone <laughs> to dress up in the red yes. slipper just like almost like the flash mob thing don't tell anyone yes. what you're doing which like chase each get other it. around the venetian <laughs> that would be wonderful i love that that's a great idea yeah i could yeah when i it's funny because you're right when you when i was there I, I thought of that too it's just it's one of those things that it, 
it's so Italian and, and with the church and everybody's speaking Italian in this. And there's oftentimes that they don't have any subtitles or translation. Uh, I mean, Donald Sutherland's character of John Baxter speaks very good uh, Italian in it. And, uh, but yeah, I think your friends made a mistake, but their mistake, my golden opportunity to get to talk to you about it. Well, and that's the thing. I'm, I'm going to bring this up with them just to, to ask uh, at some point soon, because I'm puzzled. The, you know, it's got the, again, the Italian setting, it's got a killer on the loose. Mm -hmm. It's not the driving point, but it is an element. Um, it does have a mystery that needs to be solved. Um, these adults trying to solve it. It does have some pretty shocking violence, not in the way that we might expect from other Jolly, but I consider mm -hmm. that that church scene to be shocking violence. One thing we didn't talk about is at one point there's a construction worker who's trying to reach out with a beam oh, that yeah. John can grab onto, yes. but it's pointed at the camera as the camera is swinging. So in my mind, mm -hmm. I'm thinking, oh my God, he's going to get impaled on that beam mm -hmm. that he's supposed to be reaching out to. Well, and, and there's so much, the one thing I would think that, that I love about this movie is I think there's danger in every scene. I mean, mm -hmm. I think there's a sense of uneasiness, not only because of the supernatural qualities and you're wondering if, you know, maybe somehow the daughter has been reincarnated or whatever. But, um, you know, every time he's working, I think he's sort of in danger in a way. That big head that he's moving into the one place, on oh, the, yeah. like the buttress or whatever. And it, at times it almost looks like he's, it's a mirror. Like it's only, it has a slight resemblance to him. And again, there's this sort of doubling or the mirror imagery. And yet it's this big, heavy thing. And he's, again, way up. And he's trying to put this into place. And it's too heavy. And he's struggling with it. And see, there's another, like, he could have fallen right there. And they're teasing us, like, is this going to be the scene where he falls? No, nope, that's coming later. And wait till you see it. Uh, but that whole movie is kind of on, on, on the edge like that. Yeah, very much so. I, I still don't. I got dizzy when I was watching that scene with the big head. Thanks for, for bringing oh, it yeah. up. Um, but the, the, the most important reason that I maintain that Don't Look Now is a bona fide giallo film is because there are a couple of shots uh, involving J&B Scotch, which um, is a hallmark of the <laughs> giallo genre. And in fact, in one scene, John <laughs> I, is drinking. I did not realize that was such a hallmark, but that's wonderful. Oh. Oh, yes. Actually, hold on. Let me see if you can see it. You can see it right behind oh, me. Oh, my goodness. There it God. is. Watch out for the scaffolding around you. Those shelves look unstable, Ian. <laughs> I've, I've got them pretty weighted down. Buy my know. J and B scotch. Um, <laughs> but no, at one scene uh, in the when John's at a cafe, yeah. um, you, you see these three. Yeah, but there's these three bottles, these three mini bottles with the telltale red right. cap and, and yellow yes. label. Um, plus, I think there's another shot. But yes, that that's what makes it officially giallo um but, Love it. but there's Jeff, always room for giallo <laughs> there's all there's always room for giallo yes there you go i wow that that's a t-shirt someone should make that shirt i think so it sounds um, like a mark uh my friend mark would do a t-shirt like that yeah a spoiler room special i'll have to i'll have to get him on that um <laughs> but anyway jeff thank you very much for for hanging out and talking about this incredible uh movie um, I'm glad we got to talk about it. And where can people find your stuff? I mean, what are you, what are you up to? I know the answer, of course, but for those who might <laughs> for not. For those who are initiated. Well, thank you for asking, Ian. Uh, well, I can always be found on one of your shows, which is always great. And I'd happy be happy to even be on more of them. That's how much I think of you and your show um, and, and try to listen when I can. And how dare that Pat McDonald get all the 70s movies with you? I want equal time. 
I'm hey, from that what, era as well. What what decade is Don't Look Now from, sir? You're right, 73. Very good. <laughs> Move over, Pat McDonald. You've been replaced. No, I'm no, the no. double. We're doubling here now, too. 70s child <laughs> moving on. Okay. Uh, as you can read here, uh, my blog is the establishingshot.org. Um, I have been writing that for over a decade and um, member of the Chicago Indie Critics, which, by the way, we have our awards this weekend, but I'm not able to attend it from for work. Um, but I also write twice a month for PipelineArtists.com. It's a magazine about creativity online, and uh, I do essays on the film business uh, or in entertainment industry, and they're usually accompanied by caricatures, which also accompany the movie reviews that I like uh, especially or feel are worthy of having a special illustration rather than just the movie poster as the art. Um, I do caricatures uh, as well, uh, and um, it's interesting. We talked about this the other day, but there is currently a sort of promotion for the new year being done by one of the groups I belong to, the International Society of Caricature Artists, where each day they assign a celebrity and we have to draw it. Uh, for 31 days, and I've kept up with it so far. We're on day 18 tomorrow. Um, and I have to draw Reese Witherspoon. Well, I've drawn before, but the question is, how will I draw her this time? Uh, but I do some of that kind of stuff. So you can follow me on uh, pipelineartist.com, theestablishingshot.org. I'm on um, Instagram as Jeff York Caricatures and Jeff York Chicago. The movie stuff is usually on the Jeff York Chicago. The caricatures are just the art, but sometimes they mix. But those are four places you can follow me if you so find me interesting enough to follow after this. <laughs> Well, yeah, everybody check out Jeff's stuff. Um, he's a he's a tremendous artist, um, a, a hell of a film uh, critic and a great friend. So thank you very much, sir, for for hanging out. Um, also, folks, you know, we did talk about uh, Giallo a bit tonight. Um, the Music Box Theater is having they're winding now their Giallo January, uh, which they've done for the last uh, couple of years. They're showing you know all sorts of fun genre films there and coming up. This coming Monday, they're going to be showing uh, Torso. And on Tuesday, they're going to be showing uh, The Strange Vice of Mrs. Wart, which we've talked about in Academia Giallo, done by the incomparable, the maestro, Sergio Martino, who will actually be in town doing Q&As after both those events. Um, so definitely check that out. Information will be down below in the description. Uh, I'm planning to go to at least one of those screenings. I'm very excited. Um, and uh, yeah, Check us back um, on Sunday, this coming Sunday, where we'll be talking about another Sergio Martino film in honor of that uh, special event, uh, The Case of the Scorpion's Tail. Um, so I'll be live at 2 p.m. CST. Uh, I may or may not also be giving a dressing down to my fellow panelists on Academia Giallo about like missing, <laughs> missing the gondola on this film, as it were. Um, but, uh... Hey, if you want some help with that, invite me to be on that. I'll say, guys. Excuse me. Let's see your credentials. <laughs> oh no 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 no! You don't want to get into a credential match with these folks. They are uh -oh. they they they're they are the professors of Academia Giallo. Okay. But, okay. You know, sometimes the professors need a little education from the young upstart students, of which I am the sole class attendee, um, aside from the, the the audience. But yeah, that's funny. By the way, and before we go, I am remiss in not remembering that other Nicholas Rogue film. So I did look it up quickly on my cell phone here, and it was called Bad Timing: A Central Obsession. Not a very good title, but um, it was back when Art Garfunkel was starring in films, uh, and he's the lead, and he was very good. And it. it's uh, another sort of disturbing psychosexual tale. Um, but that was the double bill that I saw. Don't look now. The first time with. Uh, after college or right around college, I think this movie was from 
Oh, from 1980. So it would have been right after that. But somehow that came around to either the varsity or the uptown for a double bill on Nicholas Rogue one weekend that I happened to see both of those. Did Rogue have a thing for leading men with giant curly hair? I mean, what he, must have, <laughs> he must have. Well, and I'll tell you this too. I think he married or at least had a long term, um, a love affair with Teresa Russell, who is the leading lady opposite Art Garfunkel in Bad Timing. I think that was wow. his main squeeze for for a long, long time. Lucky guy. Mm. Yeah, Teresa she was Russell. one of those underrated actresses. I think she never quite had the career that she probably should have. But I, I remember her from from the odd film back in you know in the eighties. You know, growing up. Uh, but you're right. Yeah, and yeah. she had some chances. Like she was in Black Widow. Remember with Deborah mm -hmm. Winger and. Some of those kind of eighties horror or thrillers. Not not Scarlett Johansson. This is this is way before that. The different Black Widow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> this is a the meaning of it before if she became a superhero was a woman who would marry somebody for their money and then somehow kill them. I think the money. tagline for that was she mates and she kills. Very good. Oh my god, you are very, <laughs> very learned, sir. I love that. Uh, it was watching uh, Forbidden Trailers when I was a kid. You know, like, I want to see that movie. No, it's Rated R. Well, I can watch the trailer a billion times. But know, anyway, the Jeff. The trailers are pretty good. Yes. Uh, all right. We're going we're gonna to go. Thanks again for, for hanging out. Uh, this has been Don't Look Now, essential viewing uh, from Kicking the Seat. So, yeah, check it out. And, um, yeah, if you, if you did, you know, watch it after on our advice, uh, let us know in the comments what you think. Um, and also be sure and like and subscribe to this podcast. Follow Jeff. All of his information will be down below. Until next time, whenever that is, whatever that is, thank you very much. Take care and beware Venice is in peril. <laughs>